And this week we look at possibly, in some circles, the more disputed case uh, that Jesus is God. He came into the world as a human, but is also God. So let's look at, uh, just as we did last week, let's look at another verse in Isaiah to show that Jesus is God. Let's simply do this. Uh, Isaiah 9 verse 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This verse is the most direct reference in the Old Testament of Jesus' deity. Uh, this verse was telling people of the time that this was a promise of God to his people, that Israel will be sent a deliverer, a Messiah. Uh, and it is promised that he will restore glory and joy to the nation. But he will not only be king, not only king of Israel, but also to the world. And you see, when we look at this verse, what it begins by saying is that he will be a king. But God ensures that there is no confusion as he continues in this message, in this verse. That there's no confusion, there's no affiliation or likeness to other kings before or after Jesus. That this king that is coming, or has come from our perspective, but is coming from the Old Testament perspective, will be the last king, uh, certainly, that is required to pay for all sins. And this wonderful counsellor will be full of wisdom. Uh, and you would know that this meaning is wonderful counsellor. A counsellor is generally full of wisdom. They offer wisdom to you in a very practical sense. If you go and see a counsellor, uh, they have studied for a long time and they become wise in what they study. And so they can offer help. This counsellor is uh, much more, more qualified as a counsellor, the wonderful counsellor, the one uh, that will bring about uh, full wisdom for his people that will have um, counselling that is unquestionable, should we say. He'll always be making the right choices for his people. Um, but this could be associated with so many kings, of course, because many kings, many rulers uh, have shown themselves to be wise. They could also be wise as well. And while all human kings fall uh, and do not always submit to God's authority, this one would be different. This person will be called mighty God. He will be a divine king, one who is God in the form of a human. This Jesus, this coming Messiah, will be everlasting father. And then you might get confused. And then you might ask, well, hold on a minute. Isn't God the father, the father? Isn't he the everlasting father? And this is where you, we get a lesson in context. And so when we look at this and we look at it from a king, king point of view, when it says everlasting father, kings were referred to as father of their nations. Kings now, even now, are referred to as kings of their countries, fathers of their nations. And so in this context, Jesus is referred to as the father of the nation, of his nation of Israel. He does not take the place of the father because that would suppose a oneness God. There is no trinity, uh, but instead he is father over a nation. 
And so like many kings uh, are referred to as a father to their people, Jesus is also referred to here as the father of his people. Uh, but the difference with this one is that his fatherhood will never end. Uh, it will not end like mere king, human kings to be passed on, but will now reside forever in the God King, Jesus Christ. And no human can obviously live forever. We can't live forever here, certainly in this place. But God who lives, as Jesus lives now, is the only one who could be everlasting. Uh, Romans uh, 9 verses 1 to 5 says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ uh, for the... Oh, that's the wrong one. That's, that's, that's too soon. No, we must go back. I'm going to go back this way. There we go. <laughs> Let me use my control because that's jumping verses. Okay. Let me say this again. A great sorrow and ceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving, the receiving uh, of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. This man, Jesus, who arrived into Jerusalem on a donkey, is God. Paul speaks of his pain over a people who will not accept this Jesus as their Messiah who was foretold. Romans 9 helps us to understand the same problem then as we have today. More specifically, it speaks of the only way Jews and Gentiles are able to come under the righteousness of a holy God. It is by grace through faith. It is only trusting in Jesus that they will also be saved. As we are now only saved through Jesus Christ. It is a gift. It's not something that can be earned through law keeping, but submission to the perfect law keeper. And even if people get past their denial of Jesus' existence on earth and accept that, yes, he probably did exist, they seemingly will not accept him as the one true God. What's more difficult to accept is something that is written, something that is said about someone that necessarily to us cannot be proven. Now, we could prove that Jesus was on earth because much evidence is around to prove that he existed. And many people will find it difficult to make that next step to believe he is God. And it's so much easier, isn't it, to say there is, I believe in God without acknowledging that Jesus is also God. And then we get this sense of not Christianity anymore, but a sense of a spirituality of God, a, a sense of a God of who I want him to be. And so as if every year that passes, when I think about this, the, the memory of, of my days in my unbelief uh, become slightly foggier. They become harder to remember. And, I, and what I, I don't mean by that is I, I, I don't mean that I don't remember things I did. Uh, of course, I remember all the things I did and, you know, some things more so than others when I, was a, I wasn't a believer. I still remember things I did, events in my life. 
But as I continue to live a life that is directed towards a belief and faith in Jesus, the Messiah, I find it harder and harder to see the logic of the unbeliever. Now, don't get me wrong. I have love for non-believers because God has told me if I, if I love him, then I love who he has created. I love every single being. As, as difficult as at times that may be, uh, I'm not putting on a fake thing where I'm saying I do uh, practice the, in a sense of loving somebody. I can meet someone in the street and I can love them even though they might disagree with me intensely. But I'm called to love what God has created. I'm called to love not just in word, but in action. But I do find it harder as I discover more about God, as I learn more about Jesus, as I learn more about the things that I may have believed wrongly about Jesus, that now I think, wow, that, why didn't I see that? This is so logical why Jesus is God. And I find it harder for the unbeliever's position to say Jesus is not God. I find it harder to not say, what well, the evidence is right here. It's not, it's not super spiritual stuff. It, it's literally evidence that says Jesus is God. But I think this is okay. I think it's okay that we move away from a worldliness. We move away from a sense of going, well, um, I can kind of be happy with you going to hell as long as I keep meeting with you and as long as I keep uh, feeding God into your life but not, never really directly saying anything to you about God, I think it's okay that actually there is a sense that you grow further away in your unbelief. I don't sit with the unbeliever anymore, but I want them to become believers. The only way they can become believers in a sense, not the only way, but certainly my mission and every Christian's mission, is that I must stand on the side of belief. And so therefore reach into the unbelief and go, Will you come to see Jesus? Will you come to meet him? Otherwise, all I'm doing is stepping into their son and saying, hey, guys, it's fine. You're going to hell. I'm going to heaven. It's all okay. I could have used a Spurgeon quote right here, but I've used it before, and I don't want to overuse Spurgeon quotes. I want to be careful about how I use them. But he said the same thing. I can't quote it direct, but he said we need not be helpers of people into hell, that we don't let them go into hell just because we just want to enable them and just say, look, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. I just want to be friends with you. This is far from it. When you tell them the truth, otherwise we are serving them into hell. Otherwise we are enabling them into hell. I haven't lost compassion for where unbelievers are. I haven't lost compassion for their doubts and their questions. But I think it is right that we speak from the position that our faith puts us in. Now, save from the futility of the world, as Christians, we're called into the world to bring others with us. Do you see now we're called aliens? We're, we're foreign to this world as believers. And so the way we look at the world is very different indeed. Now we're sent back in to go and get more people, to go and tell people about Jesus in the hope they will follow us out of the world and into Jesus. And this is okay because 
we do need this anchor in our belief because no matter how far we go into the world, faith in Jesus really is our anchor. So again, we're not lost to it. We don't ever become lost again. So this is, this is why it is difficult. It is not an easy decision to make to become a believer because as you grow, and it's why Paul said many things about why people need to get off the milk. You need to grow up. You need to mature. You can't stay in the, in the fun land of two year, the two-year grace period, as it were, of being a Christian and going, oh, this is great. Jesus loves me. And he does, and he will continue to do that, and he'll still be the same Jesus. But at some point, we need to keep growing. We need to keep maturing because that will not only serve us most certainly, but it will serve the people who still do not believe. If I'm not professing Jesus as Lord, which Jesus am I professing? Which one am I telling people about? If I haven't matured in my faith and growth and know who this Jesus really is. And so, of course, that's why the picture was there. <clears throat> this is a old deep dive suit. Uh, I, I looked for so many different diver suits. Um, and as with many analogies, they all fail, mostly after a point. Uh, most certainly today's technology, um, they don't need this tether line anymore, which did not serve my analogy whatsoever uh, when I looked at it. So I couldn't use it. And I thought, well, there's got to be one where there's a tether line to the surface. Um, and I'm sure that in 50 to 100 years time, if we're, Jesus hasn't returned, that technology would also have moved on. So I'm happy to use old pictures of old diver suits to explain my analogy. Uh, this oxygen supply, you can see this pipe that's going up, is the ox oxygen supply from above the surface, and it allows the diver to walk in deep waters. <clears throat> Most of these would have weights on their feet so they could actually walk along the surface of the water, the, the bottom of the deep waters. Um, and it is a somewhat crude analogy, I accept that. Um, but the principles are, are the same. To be saved in Christ means my life is sustained by him. I need what he feeds me. I need everything that he has given me, but I keep needing it. And I need to keep breathing that in. I need to keep breathing that oxygen in. I have the suit, maybe the armor, if you will, to be able to go about in this inhospitable world. Wading through this world is difficult. It's slow. Many forces push against us, slow us down and even make us stumble. But the only reason we're sustained by Christ is because we have to accept something that we may not fully understand now. We have to accept that when the Bible said that Jesus is God, it is true. And so imagine what it was like when, Je when Jesus was speaking with his opponents at the time. And this is in John 8, 48 to 49. And we're going to uh, do a bit of exposition here. I'll go through a few verses. <clears throat> Uh, the Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honour my father and you dishonour me. See where I am, 48 to 49. Oh, I've done too many verses there. Okay. But this first part, this is the build-up to the big moment. You know, if you read this, you know what's coming at the end. You know this is the crucial moment where Jesus truly reveals himself about who he really is in that sense it's time now to tell everyone 
who he really is. Um, but in this build-up, Jesus actually claims to be God before he says he is God. And he does this no less than three times before we get to the moment where he actually says, I am. And this is the first claim Jesus threw uh, out, out, um, out of this back and forth with these uh, people. He makes clear that he is the person, Jesus, who is the son of God. Uh, and then he says he is God. Let's see if I've got the other verses yet. So Psalm 116 verse 8 says, For you, Lord, have delivered me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I didn't put all the verses in, so let me say this. It's John 48, 49. It's actually 50 and 51. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. And here is the first one. Who is Jesus to say, you must obey my word? How dare Jesus say, you must obey me? Not the Father, not, not God the Father, me, he says. Still not seeing it, right? But this is a massive revelation. And the reason why they maybe don't see it is because they're not with God, and I'm going to come to that. But we know that God saves people from death. For you, Lord, have delivered me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. But of course, they're not seeing that. And then they take this literally, this statement that he makes, they take it literally. Uh, and then he says in 52 to 53, uh, at this they exclaim, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died. And so did the prophets, yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Not only can Jesus not be God according to them, but the claim he has so far made must mean he is demon-possessed. In other words, when they use that accusation, they're saying he's mad. They're saying he's insane. There's something wrong with him. Uh, maybe not literally demon possessed, but it's it's an it's a slight on on his person. It's an it's offensive, but it is clear that they still do not understand the claim he is making. They say, "But Abraham and the prophets did die. So how can you say no one will taste death who obey you?" They've gone now down the literal route now. Wouldn't Abraham still be alive if he obeyed you? Wouldn't not? Okay. 54. Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Here's the second instance where Jesus says, I am God. Who is Jesus to say that God glorifies him? Well, we know that there's only one person that gets glory. Psalm 86, verse 12. I praise you, Lord, my God, with all my heart, I will glorify your name forever. And so the third instance of Jesus' claim to be God before he claims to be God. John 8, 55 to 56. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I'd be a liar like you, but I do not but I do know him and obey his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it 
and was glad. Or they take a while to get to this. They take a while to, for the cog to turn, for them to really click into what he's saying. But he does the same thing. He acknowledges to be person Jesus, who is the son of God, and when he says he knows God and obeys him. But then Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced of seeing me. The one who's already died is rejoiced at seeing me who stands in front of you today. In making this statement, Jesus implies that he witnessed Abraham's life in a direct and personal way. It is the only possible way that Jesus could have witnessed Abraham's life is if he was there. And the only way he could be there is if he was God. The only way he could be ever-present is if he was the ever-present God. Fifty-seven. You are not yet fifty years old, they said to him. And you've seen Abraham. We're getting there, guys. They're getting there. They're getting there. They're slowly working it out. Or maybe not. So then Jesus can clearly see there's nowhere else to go with this other than say the words directly so they understand. 58 and 59, very truly I tell you, Jesus answered before Abraham was born, I am. He has to literally say he's God before they get it. And what's the thing they do? Well, he's blaspheming according to them. So they pick up stones and they're ready to stone him. But of course, Jesus slips away. But this is the fourth and most direct claim he will make about being God incarnate, in person. So what was Jesus saying to them? John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, this woman, well, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Maybe Jesus could have put it that way to those people then. But Jesus knows exactly what to say. And we know why they don't accept what he says. Because when we zoom out of John, or saying in John 8, but zoom out and look at the other verses, we see that the rest of John chapter 8 will be the reason why this takes them so long to see that Jesus is actually saying he is God. 45 to 47. John 8 says, yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. It's, it's more than not believing that Jesus isn't God. It's that these people are self-deceived into thinking they believe in the God of Jesus Christ, the, the one who is God. They're deceived into thinking they believe in the one that they've read about, that they've been taught about, when actually they're not. Because he says, if you, if, if you hear me and I'm telling the truth, which I am, then why don't you believe me? The only way you can't believe me is because you're not of God, because I'm speaking as God also. If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? It's because 
you don't hear from God. And it's because of that you don't belong to him. To belong to God means you hear him. If you hear God, you will know that Jesus is God. And so let's work the logic back. As a Christian, you will have to accept that Jesus is God. If you do not, you do not hear what God says and therefore do not belong to God. I'm going to say it as plain as Jesus says it under cover of Jesus, okay? If you do not believe that Jesus is God, if we do not believe that Jesus is God, then we do not belong to God. Because God is saying, my son, who is God, has come to die for your sins and he was resurrected so that you may have a new life. If you don't believe that, we don't believe it. We're not hearing from God. There was a, a survey done last year um, and it stated this shocking headline um, and it was literally the headline of the article uh, and it said only one in five people in the UK believe that Jesus is God according to a Christian survey. Now over 3,000 people were surveyed and Christian and non-Christians took part in this survey. So you might think well 20% of 3,600 people believe that Jesus is God and think, well, it's a mixture of beliefs, right? If there's non-Christians in there, kind of get it. It's not all going to be 100% because non-Christians are in that mix. They're all being asked the same question. So it might be understandable. And then we get the better news that 45% of the 3,000, that's 1,350 people, believe in the resurrection. Now, I looked at this and I thought, does this make sense? Does this really make sense? I'm not, am I misreading the figures? Am I, am, I, am I terrible at maths? Is it really good news? This article said that this was good news. This is terrible news. This is, uh, I don't even understand how to, I don't even know how to explain it to you of how these numbers work. Romans 10 verse 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let me ask you this. How is that number different? How is there a different number of people believing that Jesus is God to a different number that Jesus resurrected? Shouldn't at least that be the same? Even if it's only 10% of the people. Shouldn't 10% of the people believe that Jesus is gone and 10% of the people believe that he resurrected? Because the Bible tells us so, right? Romans 10 verse 9, you must believe that he is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead and you will be saved. So if there are 1,350 people who believe in the resurrection, then they have to believe that Jesus is God. Otherwise, belief in the resurrection is utterly pointless. And so you, you scout, you go down this article and you read the comments made by Christian organizations, by a couple of them. And they said, 
This is good news, both for the church across the UK and for us as individual Christian witnesses. Is it? Is it good news? I think it's terrible news for the non-believers who are being exposed to Christians who do not believe that Jesus is both Lord God and that he rose from the dead. That's terrible for non-Christians. That means whatever is being told to them about Jesus is wrong. They believe that he rose from the dead, but they don't believe he's God. I mean, one question surely has to be, how did he raise from the dead if he's not God? The results of these two questions alone are therefore disturbing news for the church and some Christians across the UK. You're right. <laughs> I don't believe how quiet he made that with those studs on. That's quite something. But this is disturbing news for the church. They made great fanfare in this uh, article about how it's encouraging that non-believers are open to faith. So, of course, Christians should go and make Jesus known to them. And I'm, I'm, all, I'm all for that. I'm all for that, of course, because we, we want people to be saved. We want people to come to Jesus before it's too late. But the question we have to ask ourselves as Christians is what Jesus are we making known to them if we're not sharing with them that Jesus is both God and that he rose from the dead? That is disturbing. It is disturbing that there is a version of Jesus going around among people who proclaim to be Jesus' followers and telling people that Jesus is not God. If I'm told that Jesus rose from the dead, and I say, how did he do that? Is he God? They say, no. I'm using my logic brain. I'm going, look, listen, as an unbeliever, you need that to be God. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. Even if you don't believe in God, you need it to be God because it's a miracle. Does that make sense? If you're an unbeliever, I'm put myself down in a position of a non-believer. And I'm saying it has to be something outside of his humanity that makes that happen. The only way and the only person that was ever resurrected, despite what others might say about other certain people in the past that claimed to be resurrected, actually they were not. The only person who was resurrected from death to life was Jesus Christ. So just work this through with me. If you do not believe that Jesus is God, but that he rose from the dead, how was he resurrected? If you take away his deity, if you take away that he is God, it is a human only coming back from the dead. In which case we know that is not possible. There are some things I doubt about science, let me tell you, I accept their view on biology. If a human being is dead, they're dead. 
If the body is dead, the body is dead. So then where do we go? Well, then you have to have conjured up a different Jesus. Whatever way we cut it or anyone else cuts it, it is the denial that Jesus is God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 14 to 19, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have also have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. The reason why me, you, and everyone who claims to be a believer in Jesus must accept that Jesus is God is because if we don't, then we're wasting our time. Let's just pack up and go home. There's no point in any of this. There's no point in sharing the light. There's no point in sharing the gospel because the gospel in that sense is powerless. Without Jesus' death and resurrection, without him being God, it is just text. It is just historical and there's nothing more about it. What is even sadder about this is that if we do not believe in the Jesus of the Bible to be God incarnate, God who is in person, then not only is our faith futile, but we are still dead in our sins. What about the logic? If those people who are Christians who have answered the question, is Jesus God and said no, they're still dead in their sins. Yet they are going to hell thinking they're going to heaven. That's disturbing and sad, isn't it? That's terrible news. That we have people who do not believe in the Jesus of the Bible. Who are misguided, misinformed. So it's not therefore the futility we should really be worrying about. But that we have not been saved from our sins and are heading to hell under the righteous judgment of Christ. Not because Christ was not raised from the dead, because he was. But to not accept Christ as God the Saviour, who is the Son and God, and only being who is capable and was able to be resurrected, is to have condemned ourselves to hell. God's judgment happens whether anyone in this world believes it or not. Jesus will be back to bring judgment whether we believe it or not. And yet here is what seemingly is the most impossible good news ever. Jesus died on the cross in order that the price of sin will be paid. Not because we asked him to. But because God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son to die on the cross. So that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He did it anyway. Do you understand? He did it anyway. Even if there are people who don't believe he's God, he did it anyway. Because Jesus is God. And he loves his people and he loves his creation. And he wants them, all of us, to be with him. 
The only person that could take the punishment for the sins of the world, which is death, and live, was if the person was God himself. The only person who could take the righteous punishment of sin upon themselves and be resurrected three days later was if that person was righteousness himself, pure and without sin. No human being in history or to come will have ever survived the death that Jesus had. So I'm going to leave you with one of the most direct, not my words, but obviously a person I respect most dearly. Spurgeon. Depend on it, my hearer. Imagine hearing this. You never will go to heaven unless you are prepared to worship Jesus Christ as God. I mean, talk about blow the room out. Imagine the silence. Maybe the gasps. This is the challenge for us as Christians. We must first believe that Jesus is God and that he came as fully human. And when we go out into this world and we speak to people, the easier thing would be for them to accept that Jesus existed. The harder thing is that he came as God in human form to pay for everybody's sin because none of us are worthy or righteous. The reason why people reject that Jesus is God, because what it means is that I'm sinful and I'm dead in my transgressions and I need a savior. And who wants to admit that there is someone above them? This is why it's difficult, but most certainly it is why we need to believe that Jesus is both God and fully human. And we'll go more into that next week. Let's pray.